Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. A very good morning and welcome to the Football Digest show. Uh, thanks so much for joining. And the gang is all back together again. Tommy, it feels like we've been all over the shop. We were nearly there. We were nearly there last week, but we missed Jeremy Cross. Chief Sports Writer of the Daily Star, who's back with us. Lovely to have you back and smiling, Tim. Thank Lovely. you. Andy Dunn, Chief Sports Writer of the Daily Mirror. Matt Dunn, football aficionado and occasional tennis expert <laughs> on the Daily Express. Uh, we've just been talking about that, actually. Wow, what a story that that has been. Um, it's incredible. What a story. Um, um, and that's been filling the headlines as much as the football this week. But we, I think as the football returns... Um, in all its glory um, for the Premier League this weekend. I do think uh, it's a good time to get it spiced up. We'll be looking at and previewing, looking back perhaps at the Carabao Cup and looking forward. And um, uh, also the FA Cup, what a good weekend that was. A huge weekend in the Premier League, I think. Man City v Chelsea. Yeah, I think we're still going to call it a, a, a title Clash, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, we've got to stick with that. Uh, no matter how far um, uh, City are ahead, they've got to make uh, a fight of it, Chelsea. I'm sure they will. Um, Man United, are you convinced? I'm not. Uh, what about Aston Villa and their transfer dealings? Loads to go at this morning. But let's start perhaps with um, last night, uh, Carabao Cup. Matt, you, you and I were both there at uh, White Hart Lane. It was a strange game, wasn't it? Because basically we had three... VR decisions, which, by the way, were, were completely spot on, I felt. And, um, uh, you know, with the right decisions in the end. But Spurs probably left feeling hun- hard done by because that's the nature of the beast. But my God, there, w- there was a gap over the two games, Matt, wasn't there, between Chelsea and Spurs. That shows what a job Conte has got on his hands, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't mention it, to be fair. I mean, last night, though, last night, last night, he didn't, did he? The first game he did, wow. Yeah, no, he did the first game. He'd set it all up, though, hadn't he? I mean, he'd set them up to fail the second leg after the first leg when he he virtually woke up their chances, and uh, and it was as predicted. I mean, last night, VAR, we're we're, we're thanking it, because, not being funny, if it hadn't been for VAR, there'd have been extra time. You know, Kane would have scored those two penalties, and you know, not had his goal decided. I don't know what the on-field officials were thinking, but but yeah, finally we've had a justification for having the technology, because um, because that would have been the most one-sided game to go to 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 extra time, I think, in the history of the game. Um, yeah, they just weren't good enough. They weren't on it. They, they tried, and they were a little bit valiant in their their chase at the end, but it was just so lacking in any sort of class. Um, you know, it's frightening. And when he talks about the gap, you know, he's talking about the gap between Chelsea bringing on Kante at the end uh, and um, Tottenham throwing on Oliver Skip with all due respect. You know, it's it's a work in progress. He, he is that far behind. I just don't quite get the, um, the, the why he would make it that obvious at half time in a game that they, that, you know, if Spurs had got an early goal, uh, they, they could have gone on and perhaps chase Chelsea a bit harder but yeah but overall yeah of course it did did all the two yeah it's three hours of football to highlight how far Spurs have got to go at the moment yeah because he's a realist uh yeah don't care how realistic you are you're, you're playing you a game between those press conferences yeah. and you're, you're you're making your case stronger and and I don't see what he achieved by being quite so downbeat but yeah say all that stuff not last night once the tie's over but mm. But, you know, it was a disappointment. I mean, I noticed as well, only 45,000 fans again at Spurs. Mm. Uh, third game in a row that they've you know, had 15,000 empty seats or more. Um, vast yeah. spaces at the top of the big stands. Right. I know, it's just quite it, it looked full at first glance. Yeah, it did. But, but, yeah, but it's only three quarters full. Uh, and you just wonder, is the whole project going the wrong direction suddenly? You know, mm. they need to be winning games. They need to be playing European football. They need to be competitive in these semi-finals. Uh, and they're just not at the moment. And for all that Conte says, you know, it's a long process. They need to be filling that stadium next week. They need to be filling it every week. And the whole thing's gone just a little bit sour. And I think they lost their way with when, when they got rid of Pochettino. And they're still perhaps now only recovering. 
Yeah, oh, it's great. Great to give Pochettino. Great to well, give Pochettino a message. Do you know what? This is what we've. I'm, I'm not being funny, but only forty-five thousand. It's a Carabao Cup game in 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 in, in freezing cold yeah, I say, when everyone's got COVID. We just take it for granted. Great it's Spurs v Chelsea. Mate, one it's of the Cup. rivalries. It's in early the January. Half no, the world's got COVID. I mean, honestly. The, the fact that we we take in this country um, magnificent attendances for granted just amazes me. Forty five thousand is absolutely brilliant. Stage that game somewhere else. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I genuinely think. I'm by the way, fair play to Spurs, who also um, I, I think. I mean, the prices were, I mean, very very reasonable indeed. You know, so you could go along and whatever. I think forty five thousand is a good crowd. But there you go. I don't think that's got anything to do with really. I'd say that it's on the back of a Boxing Day attendance of forty thousand. Uh, and that's yeah. supposed to yeah. be the big fixture. That and then, our, our, uh, sorry, the the, um, the Tottenham Tottenham Liverpool game was forty five thousand. Tottenham Liverpool before Christmas. Well, listen, I, I, Chris, I'll bow to anyone in, in knowledge of attendances, pal. I mean, you are the absolute expert. <laughs> well, I am obsessed we by attendances, attendance, but look, I I I, I think that stadium is absolutely magnificent. Absolutely incredible. It um, is, but it doesn't it is an absolute nightmare to get to. Absolute disaster um, transport-wise, yes. public transport. You have, you know, for someone who leaves late, you absolutely have to drive. There's no there's no two ways about it. Um, and it's just, it's you, 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 it, yeah, it's, it's incredibly inaccessible. I, I get all that. Um, and I think I, I never, ever, ever not the, the paying match-going fan, ever. And so I'm not, I'm not deriding that, but I just think that Tottenham v Chelsea... He's a massive London derby. And I think Matt's on a point there in that basically, you know, no. when you have a London derby, at a massive stadium like that for a massive occasion, it's a chance to get to Wembley. It's a chance to roll your team on to try yeah. and reclaim. John, how um, do you, that, how that, much that, you that, that high from the jaws of defeat? You know, John, they wow. were 2 0 down after the first leg. I mean, you know, and oh, hey, listen, it should have been hey, John, hang on. You've just said yourself how. Tough it is to get to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and mm. then you're decrying the fact that only forty five thousand managed to battle away on public transport to get there on a freezing cold night. And Tottenham Chelsea is that special? I agree. It happens only, I mean, only four times in the season. I mean, God, get yourself. If, old, if Old Trafford, if Old Trafford, the uh, the Etihad often often get it. You know, people the, the naysayers and basically all the Emirates was 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 had that amount of empty seats. We we didn't, you know. We'd be um, hearing about it, basically. Last week, you know? Newcastle played Cambridge in the cup. Mm. Obviously, you know, Cambridge had the biggest draw in the world. <laughs> Newcastle have had a terrible season, one game yep. all season in the league. Um, they had a full house for that game. So, and, you know, me and Andy go to Man U quite a lot. Um, it's always full there. Yep. Just wondering, I know Andy mentioned COVID, and we all know, obviously, infection rates are, are pretty bad at the minute. Um, do you think the attendance last night was more to do with the fans' disillusionment with where the team is at the minute or how, how much does COVID factor into that attendance figure? I, I Personally, I would go with COVID, actually. Personally. I know Matt obviously maybe feels well, a bit different and just... I can understand that. But I, I just think in terms of, you know, I, I think a lot... I mean, listen, I live in North London um, and, it, uh, you know, blimey, where I live, it's been absolutely through the roof. So, listen, I get, I completely get that. I do see that. And personally, you know, I, I, I see it more from that angle. I think what the point what Matt was saying that basically is a, you know, it's it's possibly a mix of, of both, if I, under, if I understand him correctly, that basically it's a bit of the project and it's a bit of, listen, if I'm a Spurs fan, I am at, I'm going to be so excited about Antonio Conte. Listen, I'm, I, you know, Blimey, I might shock Andy here, but but my love for Conte is basically, yeah, it's up there with Maurizio. Basically, I, I, you know, I think Conte's a genius, and he has inherited a squad in decline. Last night they were missing players. In fairness to them, Son's out for a while, and you kind of take it, you know, when a player's out for a while, basically you almost take it as red that he's missing. You do, you know. Um, but I have to say, you know, Conte still got it wrong with the goalkeepers. What's he doing? You know, he's got Spurs captain, World Cup winning goalkeeper, Hugo Lloris, who I still think is a very good goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. And he's gone ahead of, you know, he's gone with his, his number two, wasn't very, you know, impressive against League One strugglers. Morecambe, um, if, I, if I'm correct. You know, it's basically, and, and, and sure enough, the goal comes on the back of, 
you know, the goalkeeper, you know, coming out for a cross that he's never going to get. He didn't get anywhere near it and it goes in off Rudiger's back. I mean, it's ridiculous. Absolutely well, ridiculous. That's a bad call. But I go back to the fact, if you're a Spurs fan, they have they have got the best manager that they could possibly have imagined or wished for. Now it's up to them, and maybe it's a bigger point, are they going to back him? And that is the issue, because I'm not being funny, but we've been here so many times before with Conte that if Conte doesn't Conte doesn't get what he wants, you won't see him for dust. He won't hang about for a long goodbye. I mean, this is the, this is the guy that, you know, swept all before him in his first season at Chelsea, went close in the next season, you know, still won the FA Cup, was was annoyed from the previous summer. And so basically, you know, he was on his bike. And the, the guy's a genius. And the, the guy was the hottest coach in Europe. And yet he's still, you know, on his, on his way from Chelsea. I, I was telling someone a story last night. It was just basically, it was a great story on content and sums up his mood. I remember doing a, a pre-season tour in Asia uh, on the back of the Diego Costa summer when Diego Costa said, look, I'm off, basically. And... Um, uh, you know, really unhappy with Chelsea, unhappy with Conte. It's been handled badly. I've been treated, you know, um, you know, reveal, you know, re- really badly. Reveals details of a of a text, you know, from Conte, the the full caboodle. We finally get the the what is known as the kind of the managerial sit down, and so you kind of get the big sit down with 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 Conte. And I remember sort of the uh, Chelsea have got one of the best sort of kind of uh, comms teams around. They really have, and so basically they're excellent, always helpful. Uh, and a pleasure to deal with. And, um, you know, they just say, look, we get it. You're going to ask one about Diego Costa, but it's going to be one. We're going to limit it to one question. Uh, Antonio's going to give a very diplomatic answer. And basically, at the end of that, he'll say no more about it and we'll move on. Well, obviously, the, the Diego Costa question comes diplomatic. Mm, <laughs> my eye, basically. He lets absolute rip and basically refuses to almost talk about anything else than Diego Costa and absolutely goes for it, basically. And then basically lets rip about kind of what he wants transfer-wise and, you know, how the club needs to match his ambition, basically. I mean, it was fantastic, his goal, because he just doesn't care. You know, basically, Conte shoots from the hip, you know. It's just, that's that's the way he is. And I think that basically, that is the biggest danger to Antonio Conte's potential success at Tottenham. It's Antonio Conte, you know. So anyway, but you know. he's he's carefully put the ball in Paratici and Levy's yep. court and put a little uh, grass and sticks above a pit above that court, and, and he's going to let them fall into that trap. Um, or you know, it, I mean, he wants it to succeed. So ideally, they give him what he wants. But if he doesn't, he's made it clear it's it's their fault. It's nothing to do with him. He's just a coach. He'll make things better on the pitch. Um, uh, and yeah, and, and so that, like you say, it could be another interesting summer. Uh, and perhaps uh, we've, we've said that his contract's a bit too short for a long-term plan. It might end up being a bit too long for, for what Conte wants to be uh, part of the, the, the Matt, do you think... Um... Do you think if he, if he doesn't get the players he wants in the summer, because obviously the January window is not where they do the main transfers, but if he doesn't get the ones he wants in the summer, do you think he'll he'll, he'll be there at the start of next season? Well, he's a winner. He came in saying, I'm a winner. And if he doesn't feel he's been given the tools to compete and win things, then I don't think he'll be interested. So, you know, uh, there's every chance that, that, he, um, that, that, that he won't be there because... You know, I think you'll sit down with Levy and be absolutely honest with him. Said, "Look, Dan, you, you brought us in to win things. You haven't given us the tools. Should we just call it a day?" And it'll almost be a mutual consent thing, um, because then Levy needs, if he's not going to back them in the transfer market, he needs to find another way to do it. And Conte's not the answer if if you're not going to spend a little bit, um, you know, because I don't think he's got the patience. Uh, nor should he, because he's built his reputation. You know, you remember when Pochettino came in with the five-year plan, he had a reputation to build. Arguably, he's still building it. Conte doesn't have to do that anymore. You know, Conte's shown that he can win things. Uh, and then that's when you get your, your, your Eddie Howe project manager and, you know, someone for the slow build. You get somebody like that in um, to, to come and build another five-year plan. But that's a sign as well that, that all the progress that's been made is pretty much been reversed as well 
Mm. I must say, in all of this, Spurs could still finish fourth, which is the remarkable thing. But we should give a a, a tip of the hat, I think, to Chelsea on the back of this. Mm. I mean, Tuchel, you know, let's be honest, had a very difficult uh, December here, but basically he's now in his fourth final in less than 12 months as Chelsea boss. I mean, Andy, that's a hell of an achievement, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a fantastic achievement. I mean, you know, you can you, you, you only have to applaud him really for that. I mean, as, as I've said before many times, um, it's a great achievement. But he inherited a very, very, very good squad of players. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, it, it's an exceptional squad of players with a, a, an incredible um, depth of resource there. Um, you know, they're, they're they're strong all over the pitch. It's simple as that. He's got options all over all over the field. So, so I'm not saying, yeah, you know, it, it's it's still some doing to get to four finals, mm. um, but it's the sort of type of the level of performance that you'd expect from a Chelsea manager, and that's demanded from a Chelsea manager. It's as simple as that. I mean, it really is. I mean, I, I, again, as I said, they just, you know, I just think they've got so many options over over the pitch. They can withstand injuries. They can withstand absences. You know, they're just a very, very good, efficient team. I mean, managed by a very, very good manager. Yeah. Jeremy, I was just going to, I mean, you know, Arsenal, Liverpool, uh, Anfield uh, tonight, you know, obviously should have been played last week. What what have you made of the whole uh, false positives thing? Allow me a little rant. I have to say, I think that basically in a time of, in a time of COVID, when people have been struggling, people have been dying, um, you know, Klopp has been particularly hit hard personally. I think to, you know, for, for, People to doubt, and you know, Arsenal fans I see it on, on on Twitter. You know, I, I don't think cover themselves in glory. I don't think anyone makes up a COVID outbreak. It's clearly something you know has gone no. has gone wrong there. But basically, oh. I don't. I don't personally believe for a, for a minute. What do you, you know, what did you make of the whole thing? Um, I thought it was a bit disrespectful to Liverpool. Actually, yeah. you know, people accuse them of lying. Essentially, you've got to remember, like you touched on there, Klopp's lost a parent to COVID. Mm. you know, uh, when the pandemic was at its peak. So he knows more than anyone, you know, um, the impact it, it has. Um, so, and, and you know, trying to get games called off um, might feel like a good, a good idea at the time uh, if you're missing a lot of players due to the pandemic, but it, it doesn't benefit anyone because you've still got to fix fit that fixture in it to the season, an already crammed season. So. Mm. You know the chances are when that fixture does get replayed, it'll still come an awkward time. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I just don't buy into it that, that a club of the size of Liverpool, its traditions and everything, would 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 you know try and fiddle test results. It's just libelous almost, really, isn't it? I suppose. But um, who do so you yeah. make favourites over the two legs? Probably Liverpool. I know they've got a few players, key players missing at the African Cup of Nations. Um, so have Arsenal too, to be fair. Um, it's obviously not been a great week for Arsenal, has it? Losing the Cup to Forest and then losing that great game against City when I thought they deserved at least a point. So, you know, they've got a bit of a... They've got pressure on them to bounce back. Um, and Liverpool have given up the home leg for the second second tie. So I think over two legs, I'd, I'd expect Liverpool just to edge it. Mm, yeah, no, we'll, we'll we'll be a tight one. Guys, must look back at the FA Cup, and you know, we're, I mean, some of the some of the stories were were fantastic, weren't we? I mean, you, you know, Jeremy, you touched on it about Newcastle, Cambridge, but Kidderminster as well. Uh, uh, you know, someone who loves the cup, very passionate about it. Andy, sum sum up what a good weekend it was, because I think we had some super stories, and you know, it was a terrific uh, terrific few days, wasn't it? Albeit spread over four. Yeah, because it spread over four at, at, at all times of every day. Uh, yeah, it's just a great weekend. It always is. You know, I mean, there weren't that many, you know, fairy tale stories, as it were. But that's because there probably wasn't that many sort of um, fairy tale cup ties. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and as long as you look at the draw for the fourth round, and there's only really one standout tie, which is Kidderminster against um, West Ham. Um, but yeah, it was just great. I mean, it's just great to have something different, isn't it? You know, it is great to have something different. Mm-hmm. It's great to sort of you know, um, hear about things other than, than, than you know, Manchester United's manager or about VAR even, although we did hear quite a bit of VAR um, uh, um, during FA Cup weekend. 
Um, and and yet it, it just shows that you know. And, and what I, what I did what I did like was that was that you know a lot of teams. You mentioned about um, Conte last night, the unfathomable decision. You, you know, you expect forty five thousand people to turn up to watch the reserve goalkeeper. I mean, that you know, <laughs> if he's not treated seriously, then why, why should the fans? I don't, I don't want just going back to that. But well, it's bitter. FA Cup weekend. You know, I, I, I enjoyed the fact that most clubs seem to, most Premier League clubs seem to pronounce, you know, good good teams. I enjoyed the fact that, for example, you know, Manchester City had a whole host of COVID cases and, and, and issues, but then sent out the best possible team they could at Swindon to kick off FA Cup mm. weekend. I was at United, and even though, you know, I'm sure we all agree that it's a shame the television, you know, consistently just pick on all Premier League Ties, you know, because because basically they have the biggest fan bases. We know that, but yeah, I really enjoyed Manu Villa on um, on Monday night, which me and Je- myself and Jeremy were at, you know. And again, Gerard putting out a a first choice team, um, and it's yeah, it listen, it's alive and well. And I think also, you know, what what added to the weekend, you know, is is without a doubt, is is no replays. Mm. It, it, it just adds, and it will add to the fourth round. You know, it's oh, jeopardy. It's going to get done on the day. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, for me, I mean, look at look at the um, um, the Barrow game. I mean, I mean, just incredible, like you know, incredible drama and incredible, you know. And I think that actually only adds to the magic of the FA Cup is the fact that you know you can't grind out a draw and, and have a replay, you know, ten days later. Yeah, I must say, I thought that really added to to, to the weekend. Yeah, I thought it was great. Right. It's amazing, isn't it? That basically didn't none went to a shootout. Not- None went to a shootout, several to extra time, none to a shootout. Yeah, which I think is great because I think that's a reflection of, listen, I love a shootout as much as the yes. next man. Please don't get me wrong. I hate it when, com- one of my pet hates in commentary is, you know, no one wants to see it settled by by, by penalty. Yeah. Uh, I think you'll find we all do, thanks exactly. very much. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I think it's a reflection, it, you know, basically, yeah. Matt, I don't know whether you agree, you're kind of, you know, team's really going for it. It's great. Yeah, I think so. And uh, like you said, I, I think it's an opportunity for the FA going forward because obviously there's a financial benefit to them in having replays because mm. they've got more TV matches. Yeah. <laughs> but if they can sell that to the Premier League to open up their calendar and Premier League clubs filter more money down to them for the grassroots causes that they try and support, then I think it's win-win for the FA. They could get more money from the Premier League by not having replays on a permanent basis and add to the excitement of the Cup and perhaps reinvigorate those early rounds just a little bit. But yeah, because I agree, I think when you know it's going to be... I think when you go to a game knowing you're going to see a result on the day, you have an extra buzz about it because you think, especially for young kids, which is a lot of what the FA Cup's about because they're the ones who can get tickets suddenly... You know, telling you know your son that we're going to see a winner today. <laughs> the whole concept of a draw doesn't really compute at a low level, does it? To you know, the, us hard bitten football people who are used to that sort of thing, yeah, it's great. But but to say, look, we're going to see we're going to see a winner and a loser today. I think that makes a lot more sense, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Costa, did, now, you Jeremy, you... The, uh, did you enjoy the penalty shootout final at Wembley in the summer? <laughs> that was one penalty shoot I didn't enjoy, but I just, I, you know, I, it just always makes me laugh. Honestly, commentator after commentator, yeah, it. and it's all well. It is a cliche, isn't it? Uh, basically, no one, you know, don't want to see it settled by penalties. Uh, I think you'll find, you know, yeah. 95 percent of the viewing audience want to see a thrilling 120 minutes and then penalties. Thank you very much. So, you know, it's just an absolute nonsense. But there you go. Anyway, rant over. Jeremy, listen, you were at Old Trafford on Monday night, weren't you? I mean, Villa, what an absolute daylight robbery, surely. But I tell you, the thing that struck me and a lot of people, obviously, was that where on earth are Man United going under Ralph Raniak? And yet, I mean, how do you christen him? Lucky Ralph. I mean, it's just incredible because he has got results not befitting the performances. Is that... is that is that fair? Because he has, isn't he? I mean, he's actually got quite a decent record. So if you looked at it from the outside, you'd be going, "Oh, is he a contender?" Well, he's clearly not, is he? And the level of performance and the, you know, I mean, it's well, just it's not Man United. I don't really know where to start with this. Um, 
Yeah, on on paper, his results have been pretty positive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, winning games one nil is is not what Man U fans have become accustomed to. Obviously, I know we we always, and this is part of the problem, in my opinion, with United. Anyone associated with them cannot help but hark back to the the great era under Fergie. You know, they mm-hmm. sing chant songs about Cantona and all the legends of that era. And, you know, while tradition and all that success is hard, you can't just ignore it and leave it behind. You have to find a way to move on. And, you know, but these fans, they they used to seeing thrilling games. They used to seeing teams that win games 4-4-3 four, four, with two get goals in the last five minutes. The results have been good. Well, good, yeah, positive. You know, they're, they're, they're winning matches eking out wins, but like they didn't deserve to beat Villa. I thought Villa should have won that game on Monday night. Mm. They created far more of the better chances. And I think the biggest concern is you look at them play and they just don't seem to have, I mean, it's like a broken record. It really is, but they don't seem to have a plan. I know you can't expect Rangit just to come into a, which is clearly a divided squad and fix things straight away. Um, he's only had seven or eight games. So, you know, you can't just flick a switch. But they're now being managed by an interim coach who will probably not be there at the end of the season in terms of that role. He will move, move, step aside and move inside yeah. and will have a huge sort of role in who they do appoint as his, re- his own replacement. So you just look at a club of the size of Man United and you think, how have they got into this scenario, really? I mean, they've got players at least... Double figures the amount of players that want to leave. If not this month, then in the summer. Uh, there's cliques in the dressing room, which Rangnick's basically confirmed to us. Um, Ronaldo's form's dropped off. Uh, Rashford looks like an absolute pale imitation of the player we know he can be. Um, you know, it's just, it's just so such. They're in such a malaise. Woodward's obviously about to leave. There's a new CEO coming in. You just, I just don't know. It's hard to sort of encompass, pinpoint one particular problem because there are so many problems um, engulfing that club. And it just, you know, it was it was poor to see on Monday. You know, they were, they're not good to watch. They're really not good to watch. No, no. I, I don't know whether you've seen the comments from, you know, Ronaldo's clearly done an interview. Um, and they put some quotes out this morning, Sky, I think, ahead of the game. Um you know, this weekend saying that basically I've come, I've come here, you know, think that basically to compete for trophies, you know, don't not come here to, you know, I still believe that we yeah. can, you know, compete for top three, basically. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and you know, that that's, it's, it's not me. And it's, uh, it's a reflection, isn't it? Of, 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 of where Ronaldo, Ronaldo is. He looks very unhappy on the pitch, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, you can t- t- see his body language a mile off. Well, he, well, well, you know, he scored some goals, but you know, you could argue that they were they were probably more competitive before he arrived than when he did arrive. You know, mm. and I have to say, it's funny that I mean, obviously, I was alongside Jeremy at the game on Monday, and it's funny I got in the car in the uh, you know the, the, the usual traffic jam outside Old Trafford, and I switch on the radio, and the first five callers to the phone in, you know, absolutely hammering United. We couldn't get any lower. It's terrible. What's Ralph all about? And you know, and I had, to, I had to just check my phone just just to check that I'd actually seen United win a game. I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking, well, well, hang on a minute, like you know, you have just won a game, and I agree with everything Jeremy says how poor they were. But listen, first things first, Aston Villa were not unlucky. Okay, they were not unlucky. Um, they they were the, they were the better side, the more dominant side. But you know, fifty percent of the game is converting your opportunities, and they failed to convert them. It wasn't Manchester United's fault. They weren't lucky that Ollie Watkins hit the bar from four yards out. Well, you know, he should have It's no, but it's as simple as that. You know, they weren't unlucky. They, I mean, they were not unlucky. And, and to be fair, well, what about Ings? What about the Ings goal? Come on, that's if that's clear and obvious. I mean, that, no, well, know, it, come it, on, it probably isn't. And there was an element of them looking at that, just looking for something to, you know, I. I I never ever. I, I I always think it's just like you know nonsense when people say there's big team bias and referees. But the more I watch games now, you know, I mean, Michael Oliver's Mike Oliver's performance on Monday. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, Luke Shaw must have must have committed 
eight fouls before he even booked. One of them was almost a red card offence in itself when he wiped out a guy down by the corner flight. Didn't even book him for that. And Oliver's performance was pretty poor. And it did look as though they were just trying to find something to disallow that goal for. Well, having said all that, you know, it, 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 it was an offence that you could have disallowed it for. And and even Stephen Gerrard didn't hide behind that. You know, he said basically we were nearly good enough to win the game, but nearly's not good enough. Aston Villa and Steven Gerrard. And that's right, you know, Villa have only themselves to blame for not converting their superiority and their dominance into goals. That's part of football, I'm afraid. It's not luck. It's not fortune. Um, and, and you know, but everything that Jeremy says about that, that United performance is, is right. Um, and to me, I keep reading and I keep listening to callers saying, well, you know, we're getting managers who are not getting the best out of an unbelievable array of talents in this Manchester United squad. And I think that I think that fundamentally is where they're wrong. It's not an unbelievable array of talents in that squad. There are too many players in that squad who simply are not absolutely at that elite level. There are too many, you know, and, and you know, players who I admire, players who I think who, good who do on, you think is at the elite level? In, in that, that team? Yeah, yeah, in, in that, that team, yeah. Yeah. Right now, the goalkeeper? Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, I, I, I'm That's just hammered in. I'm there. I, w- I would have thought Luke Shaw isn't far off. Um, I would make a case probably for Mason Greenwood as potential, as potential. potential. Rashford yeah. is best, of course, which he is the absolute polar opposite from his best right now. Um, maybe, but beyond that, you know, I mean, as I say, good, honest professionals like Fred, like Scott McTominay, like Aaron Wambasaka, like Harry Maguire, like Victor Lindelof. You know, we, we, you know, when people say there's this vast array of talents in the United team, well, really? Maybe maybe the fact of the matter is, is, is that just, you know, a few of them just aren't good enough. When I say not good enough, I mean, aren't on the City, Chelsea, Liverpool level. That's, that's the, and that might just be the basic fact of the matter. You, you know, the, the actually, and you know, Ronaldo. I mean, I mean, look at Ronaldo. You know, we, yeah, we all say elite, he's been elite for, for 20 years, as good as. However, like, you know, I mean, I mean, he's 37 in, well, mm-hmm. two weeks' time, three weeks' time. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, he's not going to make that, that that much of a difference, you know. So I, I, I just think sometimes we're maybe reading too much into what goes on behind the scenes, too much into the, the coaching. I, I mean, I think that's all it. I, I, I think two things. I, I think, one, they're not as good individually as we like to make them out to be. And two, you know, I don't think... I, I don't think and this is like, I'm no expert, but they don't even look as physically fit as other teams. No, they don't have that energy around the pitch. They don't close down as quickly. They just don't seem to, I don't know, to just have that. And as I say, maybe we're spoiled by when we watch Manchester City or Liverpool or Chelsea and you're blown away by the, by the, by the work rates, by the athleticism, by the power, by the strength. And you're not with United. Really also, not. Andy, just mm. expanding that point further, if you go back over the last two, three, four years, you struggle to find players who've, a- who've actually progressed in terms mm. of their ability. Mm. So, you know, they have one consistent player, and that's De Gea, who's, a, who's not an outfield player. If you look mm. at the outfield players, you know, obviously you can't judge those who've come in, this, this, in the last window, but, you know, Rashford's going backwards, Greenwood's not making the progress he mm. should do. Fred McTominay, you know, Lindelof, Wambisaka. Yeah. Paid fifty million for Wambisaka, and he's not even—he's not even yeah. the fifth best right back in the country. No. But all these players that they've paid a lot of money for—they're not getting better. So you, no. you have to say it's a—it's a flaw in the coaching setup that they've had at United under various managers. They're not being coached as well as players at other clubs are. Is he- but is, is, is it... Co- I mean, listen, I, 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 there's no argument with that. And, of course, the, the, the most striking example and in a short space of time is Jaden Sancho. I mean, like, you know... Mm. It's, it's I mean, you've forgotten about him. Well, in, your, in your list of players, I've forgotten about him. Well, well it's strange, um, John, because when, um, when the teams came out when, 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 on, um, on Monday and obviously the headline news was that Ronaldo was out with a... He wasn't injured, but he had a minor muscle problem. Um, I thought... I thought, well, that, you know, that's, that's the headline news, Ronaldo. And then, you know, a couple of minutes later, I realised there was no Sancho. But it was almost an afterthought. No one wrote, oh, you know, oh, guess what? United are without Jaden Sancho. Well, they paid seventy odd million pounds for this guy, mm-hmm. you know, in the summer. So that's, that, I agree, Jeremy, that, that's, that might be coaching, but it is coaching. There is responsibility on that side. 
But I don't know also whether it's motivation. I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether it's you've got to coach someone, but you've got to motivate someone as well. And, and you've got to, you, you know. I, you have to be a certain type of player to, to succeed at Man United when you look down. I, well, let me let me throw this into the mix. Just really, John, on the broad point, I do think the motivation thing is important because I do think if you if you're Manchester United and you sort of you know you you have this the the ethos in the boardroom, you know they're forever stressing that they're the biggest club in the world in terms of commercial revenue, in terms of fan base, in terms of social media, whatever. It's almost like players are arriving. And they, they they think they're playing for the biggest club in the world, and and that in itself is enough. They're not motivated to make that club the biggest in the world because they think they're already at it. And I just think there's a complacency there that somehow, through various sort of strands, has, has come to pass. Is is that players are complacent? They think they've they're at United. They've got the shirts on. They've made it, and they don't seem to be putting in the sort of effort that I see from other teams. Yeah, Matt. Matt, do you uh, let me ask you this? Do, do you think that do you think that Ronaldo was a mistake simply because you know I don't know the same the same band of pundits who told us Ollie's at the wheel basically champion Solskjaer for the job and you know <laughs> after 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 what a win of a running win of three games they championed their former teammate basically were telling us that everyone knew nothing about football because Ronaldo was a born winner. And basically, um, you know, what do we know about tactics? Because Ronaldo would, you know, it would make it work and and everything. And and now, obviously, Ronaldo is making it pretty pretty clear in what he's sort of saying ahead of the game of the weekend that he's not particularly happy. And it's like, well, I don't know. It's yeah, it feels like it's it's another factor in in you know, Ralph Raniak hasn't been a great interim appointment. Ronaldo is another factor. Do you think that's one that they regret? Because he's not the force that he was. You you can't just go on about a warm winner, can you? The, the, the frustration and part of the reason why it's really not working out is because um, uh, Ibrahimovic had such a fantastic time there that if Ronaldo was the force of nature that he is, then he could pull them up by the bootstraps uh, and get them going in. But he isn't. And I think that's what, Ronaldo's frustration is is he thought he was and he, and he isn't that good and anyone who saw him I mean he was cruising through Serie A in his in his previous seasons you know he wasn't the Ronaldo who drove Real Madrid to all those you know European Cups you know he was on the way and understandably you know he's getting on a bit but um, yeah he was yeah it was a mistake because they didn't need that they need um, good across the ball talent that can build a new generation of Manchester United. Uh, and it, he was the appointment to make if you've got a genuinely good squad of players who just need a bit of leadership and, a, and an example. Because, I mean, I don't think he's, he, he's uh, you know, swinging the lead at United. I think he's trying. I think he's giving every ounce. And I think his professionalism has never been in doubt. And that would be good. Um, on a young dressing room of really talented players who are good enough, just need that extra little guidance and a, a little help along the way. But United haven't got that. They've got a ragtag outfit of of players who seem to have lost their way, as Andy was sort of going through the list earlier. Uh, and, and none of those are going to suddenly say, oh, well, I'm going to turn my career around because Ronaldo's here shouting a lot and, and you know, still putting in practice. You know, that's... The Mason Greenwoods in this world, yeah, maybe, maybe he could learn something from it. But United haven't got all those players. They, they've got players, as Andy says, who just aren't good enough. And uh, I think coming back to, to the, the comparative stuff, if you start playing um, combined teams with any of the top sides at United, then basically the entire United squad get about as many games as Phil Jones. You know, you, you just don't have United players in a combined United-Chelsea team. You don't have United players in a combined United-City team. That is a measure of how far off the pace they are at the moment. Uh, and that needs to be addressed across the board rather than a vanity signing. You know, come on, Cristiano, come and you know, bring the glory days back all on your own. You know, it's a Gareth Bale's, sort of signing for Spurs. He's not quite good enough to do it. And uh, yeah, no, it was a mistake because it's distracted then from what they really need to be getting on with. 
Mm, no, I agree. I agree. Listen, let's look at the flip side of the coin because Aston Villa have been busy this week. Philippe Coutinho, Luca Digne. I mean, wow. Uh, you know, they've made they've made some statement, haven't they? Really? I mean, yeah. Feels like Coutinho has been sort of hawking himself around the Premier League for about <laughs> sixteen windows running. But the, re- the reality is, you know, is that basically what he joined Barcelona for one hundred and forty-two million pounds. What four years ago? I mean, it's just, I mean, it is it's an astonishing, you know, turn of events for Coutinho. But what a coup for Villa if, if Gerard can get the best out of him. And they have signed a hell of a play in Dinya if, you know, it's close, you know, face didn't fit at Everton. Villa getting this right, Andy, do you think basically about the about the business? I, I think I think it's great business. Um, mm. you, know, you mentioned Coutinho sort of sort of almost where they'd all go wrong. And there is an element of that. But you know, don't forget, you know, he he, he had, you know, he, he was very good when he went to Bayern Munich for for a season. Yeah. You know, very, very good. I mean, and he's a good player, you know, and Steven Gerrard knows him extremely well. Um and it's and, and and I like the fact that it's a it's a signing, you know, driven by, um, inspired by and sealed by the manager. You know, there are too many instances now where where managers, you know, we, we've gone down the route of Managers identifying areas they want, and and basically other people going out, whether it be directors of football or sometimes just agents foisting players on clubs. And I like the fact that this is, you know, the the, the manager has driven this. Um, whether or not he's driven the Luca Dina signing, I'm not sure. Um, um, you know, but he listen, he did well for Everton in spells. You know, and the fact that when you say, you know, his face didn't fit, well, it did fit at Everton until Rafa Benitez came along. It yeah. just didn't fit with Rafa Benitez, as Dinia has. I'm a big fan of Dinia. I think he's a really good technician, good player. Yeah, he is. He, he is. I'm not sure, you know, well, time will tell. You know, I'm, I, I don't know um, the absolute full details of the fallout between him and Benitez, but I, I do know that he pretty much down tools. And you know, listen. I, I, on the flip side of that, you know, I'm no Benitez fan, and uh, in terms of, of of the job he's doing at Everton, and I think to to lose a player to what is essentially should be a close rival, you know, Everton and Aston Villa should both be vying for a top six slot. Then. To do that in the transfer window is, is is very unusual, but but then again, you know, Everton are backing the manager and saying like, you know, well, if you want if you want him out, then we'll get top dollar for him, and I think it's probably a fair price for him as well. To be perfectly honest, yeah, I know what you're saying. He, he he's done well. But listen, it's good business from Villa, and, and again, just going back to Monday, they looked a good team to me. You know, apart from the fact that they they didn't convert their opportunities into a victory, they looked a decent side and. You know, they're, they're back in Gerard. You knew when Gerard joined that he would have had guarantees that they would invest in either this transfer window or the summer or both. And they've done that. Um, and I think they'll kick on. I, I really do. I, I really do. I liked, I liked what Gerard said about, you know, nearly not being good enough. And, and they play United, obviously, on Saturday evening. So we'll see what happens there. But, but yes, it, it, it's good business. The pair of them are good business. If you sign in two players of the quality of... Coutinho, you know, however many 60-odd caps for Brazil, and Lucas Dinha, then if you sign those in a transfer in the January window, you're doing good business. Jeremy, we've got another absolutely cracking clash this weekend, Man City-Chelsea, in terms of the title race. You know, Man City obviously streets ahead at the moment. A, a, a Chelsea one team, bearing in mind, you know, albeit apart from the game, re, more recent game against uh, Stamford Bridge, is Tuchel one manager that can reel City back in? Um, you know, have, have Chelsea got that in their locker? They have. I mean, look, Tuchel's, Tuchel's had the, the hoodoo over Guardiola since he came to English football. Obviously, famously beat him in the Champions League final. Um, so he will back himself to win this game. But... <laughs> I have to say, Guardia, on, on, the, on the other side of the coin, Guardia, Guardia if City win this game, pretty much that's one hand, if not two, on the on the title. I know Liverpool have got a game now, but the 10 points clear. So it'll be 13 points clear of Chelsea if they beat them on Saturday lunchtime. They've, they've not played in the week. 
you know, obviously Chelsea have Chelsea have had a game last night, so that's that's sort of not helping Chelsea's cause for for Saturday. I just think City is so strong in the winter months. You know, they put a run together last last winter of thirty four and beaten games. It won them the title by a country mile. You just see the same thing happening again. It's like a case of deja vu. They're on a run of eleven straight league wins. Um, it's it's. It's going to be over, I think, if City win. I think, I think it personally, I think the title race is over already. I know it's crazy to say that in January. Mm. So much can happen with COVID and everything. But you know, I just think if 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 I just can't see City losing two or three games. I just they just got so much strength in depth. This is what this is why. I know we talk, we've talked before about City never spending 100 million quid on a player up until Grealish and they've bought lots of 50 million, 60 million mm. players. This is why they've done it. They've just built a vast squad of brilliant talent. You know, I mean, Grealish can't get a game at the minute. He can't, he can't get a league start, you know, and it's cost 100 million quid. That's how much luxury they've got, Guardiola. And they're coached by the best coach in the league. So, you know, I, I, I mean, it'll be a tight game, I think, on Saturday. Um, but if City win it, if City edge it, then that's game over. Yeah, it is really. Matt, are you, are you slightly, for everything that Tuchel has done well at Chelsea, clearly the sort of the expectation at Chelsea, as we've, as we've learned for the, through the years, through various managerial changes, is to be closer to and be challenging for the title. Are you, are you slightly surprised that Chelsea aren't closer? Are you slightly disappointed in Chelsea for not being closer? Um, yeah, I'm a little bit surprised that, but he had to kind of survive, have his first wobble, which mm. they had in December, and that's effectively ruled out their title chances because, you know, even when on Saturday, I don't think they'll they'll close the gap. But that's kind of a learning experience that they needed to have, uh, and it's possibly why this season was too early to expect it. But let's not forget, it's not even a year since. Well, mainly you and I, Grossi, were saying how wonderful Frank Lampard was because he'd got these kids <laughs> who one day would come come good. Uh, and that was that was less than a year ago. You know, yeah, last year, Frank Lampard hasn't been sacked yet. Tuchel's not even been th- – well, I think Tuchel's been thought of, but that's another story. But, uh, but you know, he's come in fast track. He's going to win his third trophy uh, uh, in um, – uh, in February, could do in in a year and a month and a day after he's taken over, and yeah, I think it's a bit churlish to say, "Well, come on, but where's your league title, Thomas?" <laughs> I, I, th- I think we can give him one more season for that. And to be yeah. fair to Roman Abramovich, I think he would would expect that. But that is the end game again. You know, he, he loves the Champions League, Roman Abramovich. He's delivered one of those, but he does want to see his team as the best in England. Uh, and I think that will be the target from the start of next season. Maybe a few more sort of tweaks on the squad because he doesn't need much. Um, but yeah, but it, but it was the fact that he, he hadn't had a downtime. He hadn't had a, a bump along the road before December. Uh, and I think he's got to ride that, work it out, work out which players are going to dig him out from those times uh, and then use that knowledge next season to build a genuine title challenge. Yeah, and, and just very quickly on that, um, mm. in, in sort of, you know, not having to go at Chelsea for for slipping away slightly, I just would say that over the the five seasons, you know, since um, in which Guardiola has been here, um, the standards, the domestic standards that Manchester City and along with Liverpool have set are just incredible. We, 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 we take it as as normal now. We take it as normal that a team wins 17 out of their first 21 league games. You know, we take it as normal now that it's 90 odd points you're going to need to win, possibly even more to win the title. We take it as normal that a team scores 100 goals. And these are standards that are being set up by Pep Guardiola that are unrealistic, really, in terms of you matching. That's why that's why Manchester United, that's one of their main problems, is they, they are setting standards, Manchester City, domestically, in the goals they're scoring, the goals they're not conceding, the games they're winning, they are setting standards there, you know, really are the likes of which we haven't seen before. And and, and we are in danger of taking those for granted. You know, you, you know, Chelsea, I don't know, what how many games they lost this season in the Premier League? Two? Mm-hmm. Okay, they've drawn a few. But you know they've only lost two games in twenty one of eight. It's not. It's not bad. You know it, it's not disastrous. It's not. It's a amazing. 
it's not a crisis, but it becomes a crisis because we compare everyone yeah. to the standards set by City. So it becomes a, a crisis if barely Nick and equalise against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. That happens. That's football. No, it's, it's, no, it's a great point, actually. Very, very good point. Now, um, I must I must touch on this one, really, because, you know, talking of transfers, there was one that's sort of a bit of an eye-catching one and has clearly caused a lot of debate and angst between the two clubs. As Newcastle uh, cheekily tweeted this morning, uh, we've got wood. Um, and basically, they've signed... Uh, <laughs> Newcastle signed Chris... Oh, yeah, one job. Into, 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 the, into, the, into the battle, yeah, I, that doesn't get edited out. But it was a Newcastle tweet. But anyway, but um, yeah, but um, but no, I, I have to say it's an eye-catching one because he's a he's a bit you know up and at him, rough and ready traditional centre forward, you know, which maybe sort of kind of goes at odds what people were thinking that Newcastle might do. Um, you know, amid all their superstar signings from wherever they might bring in this this window, and B it weakens a direct rival in in the in in the battle for survival. What did what did you make of it, Jeremy? And then also, what you know, where where are we going in the relegation scrap? Because surely it's three from four, isn't it? And and who's going to survive? And does what would make the difference? I had a chuckle actually when I saw that sign Chris Wood because I've got nothing against Chris Wood. He's a he's a wholesome player. He's you know I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's a good bloke. But if 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 Newcastle think Chris Wood is the answer to their problems in front of goal, then I, I, I must be missing something. He scored three goals this season. He hasn't scored since November. It's now January, nearly February. I mean, they paid twenty five million for him, and also you got to laugh. It, it, it sounds disrespectful. It probably is disrespectful. But when when the Saudis took over, you you, you saw these names linked with Newcastle. They're going to sign the biggest players in the world. And the second signing is Chris Wood from Burnley. So he swapped he swapped a team one place above them, and he swapped one club in the relegation zone for another one. I mean, it's 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 crazy. And I think you're right. I think part of Newcastle's thinking is to weaken Burnley and think well. Mm take what few goals they do score away from them and that, that sends them down and then that leaves Newcastle to take, you know, battle for with one other team to, to go down because Norwich are probably going to get relegated. So I just I just found it ironic that, you know, the, the richest club in the world and the second signing is Chris Wood. I just, I just don't think he fits into any our style of play. And, you know, if someone had said at the start of the window, oh, Philippe, Philippe Coutinho is coming back to English football, you'd have thought, I bet Newcastle are going to sign Coutinho. Mm. He's gone to Villa, mm. so you know I, this this idea that the Saudis are going to going to going to sports wash Newcastle. It's it, it may happen, but it, it, we're going to have to wait a while yet because Chris Wood doesn't represent sports washing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've um, I, I'm actually writing a column about about the Chris Wood signing um, for tomorrow's Daily Mirror. So have I done it? Oh, are you? It sounds, like, it sounds like we're singing from the same song sheet. Can you just Great send me a photo? Like. I've Can done mine. I'll send, send it if you, you want. Just send me a photograph. We parted off from our lunch then. Yeah, listen, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I mean, what makes me laugh to a certain extent is people saying, oh, well, like, you know, at the same time, you know, Chris Wood's only scored three in however many games, 17, 18, um, and they're weakening Burnley at the same time. Well, you can't really, you know, it's hardly weakening Burnley if they're taking away a non-scoring striker. And Chris mm-hmm. Wood's record, by the way, over five years, I totally agree with Jeremy. I think he's a uh, honest. It, 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 I mean, this is always like you know patronising. Is he's an honest, hard work and pro, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But his record over five years with Burnley isn't isn't particularly um, you know eye popping. But then again, you have to have the caveat that he, he, he's, he's not playing in a team that, that's creating amounts of chances for him every every um, every game. So there is that. But I totally agree. And the one thing about the signing that 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 sort of um, strikes me is is that Chris Wood having a release clause for a start off. You know, I, I mean, you know, we, we hear all about the release clauses from players of Barcelona, etc. But a release clause from Bernie is another thing. And also, why in that five years, I assume this release clause has been around for a long time. So why has no one even considered activating that release clause previously? It just strikes you that Newcastle thought we need to get a striker or we need to get a player. And then, obviously, someone's told them, oh, Chris Wood's got um, a release clause of £25 million. Listen, I also think that Burnley shouldn't get too wound up about it. You know, the idea that, 
you know, I, I mean, the idea that it's going to really sort of affect their prospects of staying in the Premier League. Well, they've won one in their first 17 games. So that's what's holding that. And also, the grand scheme of things, I don't think it, it's really that big a deal if they go down. You know, they had far more fun in, the, in that year in the Championship than they have in this season, for example. So I think it, 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 the whole thing that can be over dramatized. And what I would say, though, also, I think the other spin off of this is that £25 million for Chris Wood is exorbitant. That, that's, that's just put to the chase, no matter what he does. And that inflates the market. This is what we thought might happen. You know, it will inflate the market. If Burnley go out now, um, with that twenty-five million pound looking for a striker, the club who they're trying to buy that striker, that striker off, will say, "Well, hang on a minute, you've just sold Chris Wood for twenty-five million. A striker who scored three in seventeen is worth twenty-five million. This is how much we want for that. And we also know you've got Newcastle's Saudi money in your pocket, so it will inflate the market. There's a, a knock-on effect. I mean, people said, "What a great signing, Kieran, thirty-one-year-old Kieran Trippier is." Well, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm sure it's a good signing, but they paid £12 million, don't forget, for a player who's 31 and who would have been free and free of charge in five months' time. Now, that's a lot of money to pay for a player who is entering the last five months of his contract. You know, it's still a lot of money. £12 million, you know, it was widely lauded, this signing. It's still a lot of money. They paid £37 million for two players who were in the 30s and, you know, Trippi has been excellent in, in, for that Atletico Madrid, but, you know, Chris Wood obviously has, has had a poor season. So I do think that is probably the more significant spin-off is that it will have an inflationary effect on the transfer market, naturally. Yeah, no, it's interesting, interesting. Listen, let, let's, let's um, uh, weekend previews. I want to finish on Spurs-Arsenal, Matt. I think you're there, aren't you? Um, Indeed, looking forward to it. Mind the gap. That'll be that. That'll be the thing. And and, and basically, Arsenal should there. Well, you know, well, it will be very interesting. They turn how that one see, around. I want to ask you, uh, sort of, on this. Basically, how do you see the game going? How do you see the in the context? Also, I guess in the battle for top four, because um, surely fourth place will be between Spurs, Arsenal, Man United, and West Ham. It's it's almost feels like, although Arsenal feels like the upward trajectory is somewhat being pierced a little bit by that Nottingham Forest uh, defeat, it does feel like who's the least bad of the rest will finish fourth rather than who is the best, if you see what I mean. Oh. Is, is that a fair reading of the situation? And you yeah, know, who's, who's neutral uh... London superiority going to be with? I think I think it goes back to the days when we when only the top three used to qualify for the Champions League every year because there were three outstanding teams and I think there are now. Um, so so someone's getting a free ride. Um, uh, Manchester United have left a gaping hole because with their resources they should have that fourth place nailed down. Mm. Uh, and that's the big failure that Conte talks about that someone has to have to open up that gap. But it is open, and he's got to admit that. Uh, and for all that he moans about and puts pressure on signings and whatever, he has a good enough squad at his disposal now to claim that fourth place. Arsenal also seem to be getting there, but I still maintain they've not—they've played well against, but not beaten the big teams. They've beaten the teams that they should beat, which they've been very sort of uh, yeah, very routine in doing that, and and that's that's quite. A, 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 quite a difficult quality to get is to beat the bad teams every week. But they've not, you know, they, they've drawn against some of the teams around them. They've lost against the teams that are better than them. They're, they're, they're no better than where they are, is the sort of thing saying. So they need to have a few standout results, like beating Spurs at White Hart Lane, to show that they're worthy of that fourth place. And I think without Son, who's a huge miss for Spurs, they've got a chance. Without mm. Dyer as well. Uh, you know the world's uh, soon to be the world's best uh, centre centre defender. Um, so so the opportunity is there for them. Um, that said, this was uh, Conte's first defeat in eight games uh, at White Hart Lane uh, last night, and uh, you know Liverpool couldn't beat them there. Uh, they won the other six, and then obviously one nil defeat to Chelsea. So I think they'll be keen to show that they've still got something about them. It's, it's, it's a really intriguing one, but I fear for United, 
in the directionless manner in which they're trundling. And this could actually be the decider as to who gets that fourth place because West Ham, you know, if they do do it, then fair play to them because that's mm. an incredible achievement by Moyes with that size of squad. But, yeah. but realistically, if either Spurs or Arsenal claim that fourth place, having won at the weekend, then you'll look back to this result and say that was when they did it. It's one of those yeah. hindsight things. Yeah, it might not mean much going forward, but when you look back at it, this could be a very significant weekend. Yeah, I agree with you. And I must say, I must apologise. I think I do West Ham a massive disservice by saying the, the least worst of the rest, simply because I think that West oh, Ham are massively overachieving. Doing David Moyes doing an incredible job. And he's getting the best out of his players, an incredible fixture list. And, to, you know, last night they win again. You know, they're, they're firmly in the top four mix. And for them to be, to be there, I think is just uh, a sort of a tribute to them. I think the other three, frankly, would see it as underperforming. West Ham overperforming. And that's not patronising at West Ham. I think it's, it would be a sensational achievement to get Champions League football, and frankly. I think, I think most it would people, be quite a refreshing change. But I would say go. most people would like to see West Ham in there because I don't think Arsenal, Spurs or United have done enough to deserve one of those mm. top four places this season. No, it's a fair shout. It's a fair shout. Right, guys, we're going to finish with... Um, and then finally, and Jeremy, we're going to start with you and it's going to be in honour of our Prime Minister. <laughs> What's he done? Talking about, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he's got, yeah. And what are you doing I'm about... I'm off to Liverpool tonight, by the way. Well, I was going to say, uh, what are you doing about half 12, basically? <laughs> if you can if you, if, if you can make it, bring your bottle, mate, and, and there's a party going on. Um, but basically, in honour of Boris Johnson and standing up in the Commons yesterday and making a rather very, yeah, not very convincing uh, message of sorry, what are and what is your best football's worst apologies, please? Let's well, there are actually, if you just Google this, there are a lot. There are a lot of embarrassing, embarrassing apologies. Or excuses. Well, just do one, pal, and save us a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, the one that sticks out in my mind, because I covered this story, it was just over 10 years ago, was when... Um, Colo Toure failed a drugs test at Man City and mm. the explanation he gave in a, some sort of pathetic, transparent attempt to sort of apologise for making a catastrophic mistake was that he'd been basically taking his wife's slimming pills, his, diet, his wife's diet pills on the slide. We were like, what? <laughs> taking your wife's diet pills? A, did she not notice the stocks of her slimming pills were going down? And B... Why is a so-called supreme top-level football athlete having to take diet pills? You know what I mean? It's just it was, that was a massive. That was so. That, I mean, he, he got crucified for. Well, he still probably gets the rip taken out of him now. Actually, all these years on, but that was that was one of the most bizarre attempts at trying to get out of a, a what was a clearly a catastrophic mistake he'd made. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, Matt. Well, have we all seen Kettering Towns tweet? Oh, yes. Like the yes. yes. We agree and understand that there have been rumours that we lost last night's match. We, of course, could have done things differently, but would advise people to await the outcome of Sue Gray's inquiry before jumping to any conclusions. I think all managers <laughs> should probably be along those lines. But there's no doubt about it. The worst, most missing the whole point apology of all time has to be the press conference when Eric Cantona return to football after letting Manchester United down for so long, letting himself down, letting the name of football down to come up with that extraordinary nonsense about seagulls and trawlers uh, and, and still believing that it was actually the whole world is about him. Uh, <laughs> although I would say when you are sorry, it's more important probably to act sorry than, than, than say you're sorry. Uh, and he did go on and win them the, title, the double, didn't he, that season? So to be fair... I think if all of us acted sorry rather than just said we were sorry, then I think the world would be a better place. Yeah, completely agree. And Andy, to finish. Very deep and meaningful. I was just, yeah. I was just thinking about Jeremy was, was on about, uh, uh, you know, some, some bizarre excuses. It, it just, just sprung to mind. Do you remember when um, Julian Lescott apologised for accidentally pocket-tweeting a picture of his 
luxury oh, Mercedes car. Yes. <laughs> in, in, and it just happened that he'd been hammered for a particular performance. That was quite a good one. But no, mine, again, you, you know, ones that you're there for and you scarcely believe are credible was um, after Robbie Fowler um, celebrated scoring the penalty in the in in the derby at Anfield. And it made that Dobby. And when along the touchline on his hands and knees, sniffing the touchline, the white line for some reason, we sort of had to guess what it was. He'd been taunted by Everton fans. And Gerald Hulier came into the press conference and said, he wasn't, he, he wasn't sniffing the touchline. He learned the celebration. It's a grass eating celebration that Rigobert's song imported from his days at Mets. And apparently it's. <laughs> He sat there in front, you know, you're just looking at him thinking, what? And he's going on saying what he was doing was pretending to eat the grass. Now, bear in mind, the Everton fans who he did in front of, I've been I've been accusing him of, of like indulging in recreational drug use for the entire game. And then he scores the goal, he goes along the white line. Bring oh, a bad song brought in. That's what they like to do when they score. They like to eat. Pretend to eat grass, and and you know it, it, it was at that point you, know, you just look at him and you know, God rest his soul, Jared, who made such a such a lovable character, and 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 you know we used to sort of you know gently rib him about it, you know, as time goes on. But he says you know after the game, you know that's you, you defend your players, whatever. But it was just it was one yes one of the strangest apologies um, I've ever had. Just very quickly, one of the quickly best apologies I've heard. I won't name him, but a friend of mine wrote to a journalist who got something wrong, an esteemed journalist of ours, friend of ours, who got something wrong, and he got the reply, just that simply said, dear, my mate, uh, Mia Culpa, Mia Maxima Culpa. And my mate rang me up and said, who's this Mia Culpa guy? I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said no, that, that's Latin for, you know, I'm to play. And he wrote back to this punter, who basically, in no uncertain terms, if you got this wrong, he says, Mia Culpa, Mia Maxima Culpa. Anyway, I'll leave you to guess who, who, who that was. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll get this off air and I'll tweet it later. Um, <laughs> no, brilliant, guys. Thanks so much. We really, really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for, for watching. Terrific stuff. Love it, love it. See you same time, same place next week. 